This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tonight, the Environmental Protection Agency holds a town hall meeting at the Oahu Veterans Center to talk about its enforcement order for the fuel spills at Red Hill. It'll be followed by an open house tomorrow evening. It'll be a chance for the public to interface with federal regulators and the military about the contamination and about the defueling plan and shutdown of the underground storage tanks. The Board of Water Supply maintains that the new order doesn't set clear deadlines. Earlier this morning, Amy Miller joined us in studio. She's the Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Director for the EPA's Region 9, which covers the West Coast and the Pacific. You know, for EPA, what is most important that this is done in a safe and protective manner. We want this to be done as quickly as possible as everyone else. We play an incredibly important role of overseeing and bringing our technical expertise on spill response, drinking water, and underground storage tanks as they move forward with the process of defueling. I think that the concern that we've heard also from uh, some environmental groups is that under the previous order of consent and the action plan that the Navy was able to kind of slide on some of their deadlines? We agree that the order wasn't sufficient and recognize that we need something stronger and more effective and we feel that this order provides those tools and it also reflects the changed circumstances. This order builds on the existing order. That order is still in effect and it is focused now on remediation, the 2015 order. This order focuses on the defueling, closure, and drinking water system and making sure that it is resilient as they are defueling. We're in a situation right now where since those spills, we've had the spill of the forever chemicals, right, the foam concentrate, and we're still awaiting that report. I don't know if you've uh, been privy to it. I believe that the, the Navy has it and is holding its release until it reviews it. Have you had an opportunity to look at it? No, I, I have not, and um, we are looking forward to it. We did issue an information request to the Navy a very comprehensive one. We want to get to the bottom of this, too. We are jumping on things as quickly as we learn of them. Our goal is to prevent, as well as as things happen, to quickly respond. We did send an information request out, and they are going to be responding, I believe, around February 6th, and we will share that response with the public. I guess the concern is that the defueling, I think, is basically been put on hold. The environmental groups are concerned because that means there's just fuel above our aquifer, and, and they're just worried about that. Well, in order to, to move the fuel, my understanding is they do need to have a fire suppression system in place, because that's a lot of fuel. The worst thing we would want is for there to be a fire. And so I'm sure the Navy is, is working on options, and we will look at those and evaluate and, and make sure that they are the most protective for the environment. And then can we go back to the uh, inspection that you folks conducted uh, on the Red Hill facility following the, no the November spill? Share with our listeners, I guess, what were the, some of the, the main points? First off, I, I want to say that when the drinking water emergency incident occurred, EPA was very focused on getting the drinking water system up and running. So, th so that's where, where we focused our attention. After the drinking water was cleared to be used, we embarked on a very intensive investigation. We did an investigation looking at the underground storage tanks. We looked at their spill prevention program, as well as the drinking water system. We did a really in-depth dive into all of these systems, looking at them. And what we found is, across the board, you know, we're seeing aging infrastructure and a need to develop stronger spill prevention plans and being ready for spills. At one point, the military was saying, you know, as far as uh, the systems at Red Hill that they meet or exceed federal regulations, and then to come back and then re read your report that, look, these things really need addressing, you know, there is that distrust. And I think as we saw from the get-go, as far as the testing results, that, that delay of not having a lab here in Hawaii really kind of hampers our maybe ability to move quickly. What do you say to the calls that we're hearing about, you know, we need a, 
a lab you know, on island to be able to do that kind of testing. I think EPA in general works very closely with the Department of Health to make sure that we have a, a strong environmental program out here, which includes laboratory services. And it is something that we are in conversations with Department of Health to ensure that they have access to robust laboratory services. Has there been any kind of a, a determination, though, whether that lab should be here on island? as opposed to, you know, us sending the samples off somewhere on the mainland and then taking, you know, days or weeks to get back? I think that that is a good question for Department of Health because I know it's of keen interest to them and, and we're willing to work with them and support them in building that capacity. So today we have a town hall 5 to 8.30 at Oahu's Veteran Council and Center. And the concept for tonight is to allow for questions and answers. And that is something that, that we have received feedback from, for instance, the uh, Oahu water keepers really want to, to be able to engage with the leaders of both EPA and the Navy. And so we're providing that opportunity. We have a second day because we're concerned that there's so much interest. We want to make sure that there's opportunity for people to have one-on-one time with our experts. We've brought a significant team with us to help answer questions that people may have broadly, not just with the 2023 consent agreement, but also just in general about Red Hill and EPA's involvement. Is there anything else that you want to add just about this current order of consent? One thing I wanted to mention is we do know that there's going to be a lot of interest in this meeting tonight and wanted to share with everyone that it's also going to be broadcast on Channel 49, Olelo. For those who aren't able to go, they can watch it. We're trying to get information out so that people feel like they can provide us with proper feedback on the consent order. Okay, and will this be the only opportunity for the public to weigh in? Uh, the public has until February 6th to formally provide comments on our website, and we look forward to hearing from the public. It's really important that we get people's input on this very important consent agreement, which is to protect the sole source aquifer here in Oahu. We talk with Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Director for the EPA's Region 9, Amy Miller, about Red Hill enforcement in orders earlier this morning. We'll have links uh, to the two meetings, tonight and tomorrow's meeting, on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And while the focus is on the shutdown and defueling of the tanks, uh, one of our listeners called in and left this suggestion about what to do when the tanks are fully emptied. This is Daniel from Volcano calling to suggest what to do with Red Hill. Turn it into a battery for a solar system, a publicly owned solar system for the island of Oahu. Water is running a turbine at night. You could pump water in it during the day, and uh, you could uh, grid the city at night with all the, those huge tanks using gravity and uh, solar during the day. It could also be used for water filtration for the public. It should be a publicly owned utility, which could turn lemons into lemonade. This is what needs to be done. Aloha. All right. Well, thanks for that feedback, Daniel. Do you have any thoughts about Red Hill? Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Ikaika Anderson met with the Hawaiian Homes Commission for the first time yesterday. The former Honolulu City Council chair and unsuccessful lieutenant governor candidate is Governor Green's pick to head the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Uh, Anderson says he did not initially apply for the job, but was asked to be considered for the post. He's only been on the job for less than two weeks. He took the heat before the Senate Ways and Means Committee last week because he couldn't say if the department needed an extension to spend the $600 million to get more Native Hawaiian beneficiaries off the wait list and onto homestead land. Uh, Anderson will be back before lawmakers tomorrow with their answer. Yesterday I asked my fellow commissioners if the commission would accept an extension to the existing 
timeline of expending the historic $600 million appropriation by the legislature should the legislature grant us such an exemption. And the commission voted unanimously that yes, we would accept an extension if the legislature should offer it. So I'm very pleased that the uh, commission has adopted uh, that position. And I just feel, Catherine, it's a responsible position to take that if an extension is offered, that we would graciously accept it so that we can expend these funds on behalf of our beneficiaries. We are going to work diligently with the existing timeline that's in the act. But that said, if an extension is offered, we would graciously accept it from the legislature. So clarify uh, for our listeners out there this snafu about the spending, because you can't spend too much too soon. That's correct. And that has to do with uh, federal spending guidelines that are in federal dollars pertaining to the coronavirus outside of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands and the Hawaiian Homes Commission per se, that other state departments, such as the Department of Education, is our understanding, are under the same constraints, all of, uh, of government in general. That our $600 million appropriation and the Department of Hawaiian Homelands monies also fall into. So to address that, my predecessor with the Hawaiian Homes Commission in December of last year as part of their plan, submitted proposed legislation to fix that. And our staff did talk extensively yesterday during our Hawaiian Homes Commission meeting about that. But again, I just believe it's responsible, and the commission agreed, that should the legislature graciously allow us an extension, that we would accept it. Okay, and you are back before the lawmakers tomorrow. I am back before the Senate Ways and Means Committee tomorrow afternoon. That's correct. And so... And I look forward to the opportunity. So... Uh, Explain the plan going forward, how you hope to be able to put more of our beneficiaries uh, in homes. We would like to look at opportunities to actually build vertical for our beneficiaries, Catherine. It's, it's absolutely important to Governor Green and to the commission to put more Kanaka in homes, not just developing lots. Where I believe we can do this is shifting some of the focus to rental housing, also to Kupuna housing, similarly to what was done in Waimanalo. That's a beautiful project in Waimanalo that's been available to our Kupuna for at least 20 years. It works. It's popular in Waimanalo. As a department, are also working with Stanford Car Development to redevelop the Bolodrome, which will offer upwards of 270 rental opportunities for our beneficiaries. I'd like to see us do more of those projects, like going vertical, which Stanford Car is doing in the primary urban core in Honolulu, and also considering low-rise and mid-rise opportunities, including rentals, on the neighbor islands. And what's your sense as to the barriers for getting Bolodrome up and running? Because you've been talking about that parcel for a long time. Uh, right now, my understanding is uh, construction is slated to start this fall. So we are moving and look forward to that groundbreaking and working with Stanford Car. Uh, we'd also like to work with more of our local developers like Stanford to do additional projects like that. Part of our, our strategic plan with the Hawaiian Homes Commission is also acquiring lands, looking for lands where we can do additional projects like this. I know that uh, there's some concern about being Oahu-centric. And if you talk about going vertical, I don't know, how does that work for the neighbor islands? Neighbor islands, it would have to be more low to mid-rise. And I'm glad you talked about being Oahu-centric. My administration is not going to be Oahu-centric. And in fact, before I officially took office, I only got the keys to the Department of Hawaiian Homeland headquarters on January 3rd of this year, despite being nominated by Governor Green in December of 2022. But shortly after my nomination, uh, Catherine, at the invitation of homestead leaders, beneficiary leaders on Hawaii Island, I went to Pane'ewa to meet with folks from Pane'ewa, from Keokaha, from Kona, from Kau, where I shared with them, look, this is where we're starting our outreach on a neighbor island at your invitation. That's going to be common practice, the norm for my administration. We are going to actively meet with our neighbor island constituencies. I've also talked with Kipukai Kuali'i from Kauai. We're looking to do the same thing with him as soon as we can get out to Kauai and meet with him and also our Kauai representative on the commission, Mr. Nevis, who has been absolutely wonderful to work with. What about Molokai? The big news of obviously the military is releasing some of the yes. land, the Air Force. So what do you think would be the best and highest use for that property with the ag component, with the housing? 
So just last Friday, a 364-acre property was returned to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands inventory from the U.S. Air Force. I'm pleased that we have this property back in our inventory. This was announced last week Friday with Governor Green and with Senator Lindy Coit and military leaders. Saturday, less than 24 hours after that press conference, I was on Molokai with Senator DeCoit at her invitation, walking that property, Catherine, to take a look at it. Talking with Senator DeCoit, that property would be prime for pastoral agricultural leases, pastoral or ag lot leases for our beneficiaries. But the senator stressed to me that we need to talk with our beneficiaries on Molokai before we do anything. And I am absolutely pledging to do that. I'm not just saying we're going to do it. I'm pledging that we're going to do it. Got to see the property for myself, not just on a map, but actually able to walk it. And we did this, again, less than 24 hours after that press conference. So that is the commitment of our administration. Is there much to be cleaned up? I mean, I know this, uh, my understanding is that this has been a decade or more in, in the works to take back some of this land. So uh, I don't know. What, what kind of land are we talking about? It's 364 acres of open field open field land. Some of it is fenced. Some of it is not. There are some existing buildings that the Air Force left that we may be able to allow our beneficiaries to use. But I do look forward to returning to Molokai to have that active conversation with Senator DeCoit and with our Molokai commissioner, Zachary Helm. And access to water, irrigation, I don't know. My understanding is there is access to potable water from the roadway, but irrigation water, agricultural water, my understanding, is difficult. And I also understand from talking with the senator and community uh, members that the area is dry during the summer months. So I look forward to working with the senator as to how we can mitigate that. But she believes, too, as she said during the press conference last Friday, that an appropriate use of, of the property would be for pastoral. And she would know. She's a Molokai resident, and she's a rancher she's herself a rancher. right there. So those are the plans for neighbor islands. What's next on your, your list here? Uh, We're also very excited that our department has pledged to issue four requests for proposals for homes, not just lots, but homes, which will equal 333 homes total across all four counties. We have a project coming up uh, in Kauai. We have one uh, in Kapolei on Oahu. Central Maui in Maui, and Laiopua in Kona. These projects will deliver actual homes, but we're looking to let the RFPs out by the end of the first quarter of this year, so by the end of March. There is a project also on the Big Island where the, an issue has arose because of the unexploded ordinance. What uh, attempts have been made to try and get the military to clean up the land so that we can expedite that? I had the opportunity to talk with the military uh, this past week on the Molokai uh, property. I look forward to now engaging the, the military as well about this particular Big Island parcel. I, I do need to know more about the parcel, exactly how many acres we're talking about and how long it's been in use. And once we look at exactly how long it's been in use and what types of uses, our department and our staff will have a better idea of the questions we need to ask the military. And where are we at with the idea that you know possibly we can use some of this money to provide beneficiaries with a down payment? in exchange for them then getting off the list? Uh, the commission is on board with working with our beneficiaries, uh, providing uh, home loan grants for mortgages on DHHL property. Uh, we had an extensive conversation with staff uh, and with the commission yesterday. That's something that we are very interested in as a commission in supporting our beneficiaries with. We're equally, though, committed to expanding opportunities for our beneficiaries for rentals. No matter what we as a commission do, so many of our beneficiaries just will not qualify for a mortgage to buy a home on DHHL property. They may not have the down payment. Again, we'd like to assist with that. They may have credit issues. They may have financial literacy issues. And they may also have income issues. But the fact remains that they are still owed a home. We're proposing uh, that we seriously look at rental opportunities for them while they are waiting to get on a property to own a home. We're also looking at the possibility of more rent to own properties, or as I like to call this, not rent to own, but rent with the option to buy at the end. Mm -hmm. Some may want to rent in a rent with an opportunity to buy. Some may just want to rent. So there is a distinct difference between rent to own and rent with option to buy. Isn't there uh, an idea to be able to use some of that money for beneficiaries to qualify, who can qualify for for homes outside of DHHL land? Isn't there like a, a, a legal issue that we, had to be There is a legal issue. Uh, there's also concern with the commission as to whether we should 
do that or should not do that as a policy call. Yesterday, the commission actually voiced disapproval with moving forward at this time with mortgage assistance off of DHHL property. And that was a policy call by the commission. Uh, there was a motion made by a fellow commissioner, uh, and it was accepted. Okay. So that's right. where we are with looking at mortgages uh, and assistance off of DHHL property f- for the time being. As we look at all this big money being spent on housing, whether it's 600 for DHHL or 200 for preschools with the DOE, I just look down the road and I have concern with the city's ability to permit these projects. I mean, y- you know wh- where we're at as the former chair of the council. The Hawaiian Homes Commission and the Department of Hawaiian Homelands recognizes the counties, city and county of Honolulu included, are overtaxed. We get that. Part of my five-point plan is to realign our current assets and work with other departments, including our counties. At DHHL, we can self-certify. We've had these conversations. And self-certifying while still abiding by all county building codes is something that we can do. And then working with the counties going forward with our infrastructure hookups. We are exploring that option. But additionally, Catherine, what's also very important is that we have in the Department of Hawaiian Homelands 59, I believe, funded vacancies and 19 unfunded vacancies. But since my arrival officially at the department 13 days ago now, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands has 22 vacancies for active recruitment. So we have 22 positions being actively recruited on the street right now. We just updated our website yesterday. If you went on our website at the beginning of this week, the job postings for DHHL weren't available. Thanks to the hard work of our staff, we are now posting our job openings on our website. So my administration is serious about filling our vacancies, and I would ask the state senate and the state house of representatives to fund our 59 funded positions let us keep those and help us with providing funding for our 19 vacancies but i've also got to thank the state legislature both the house and the senate for this historic 600 million dollar appropriation they're concerned that we spend it quickly they're concerned that we spend it efficiently and i respect that they have every right to hold our department accountable and even me as a new director accountable to ensuring that we're going to abide by their deadlines and that we're going to abide by the law and get this money out that was Akaika Anderson, who has been selected by Governor Josh Green to head DHHL, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Anderson's appointment still needs Senate approval, though no dates have been set for his confirmation hearing. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. HPR's Atherton Concert Series is back in person. Every Saturday in February, join us at HPR's Honolulu Studios for performances from Uhe Uhene, Ene, Pomaika'i, and the Galliard String Quartet with Raiatea Helm. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. As if the city's Department of Planning and Permitting didn't have enough problems with public corruption, Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Christina Jedra has uncovered a new scandal with one of its inspectors. Hey, Christina. Good morning. Yes, so your story sure made some eyes pop. Uh, You have a a situation with an inspector that was okaying his company's projects? That is correct. Uh, Arthur Supercrop has been a supervising electrical inspector for DPP for uh, several years. And in that time, he's also been the head of his own electric company, which is actually registered to his wife, but he's the the principal employee. Um, So he's been doing electrical work on the weekends. And in that time, uh, his own permits have come across his desk and he's 
inspected and approved his own work, um, and not just once or twice, but more than a dozen times, I found. Well, you know, I mean, that in itself is pretty stunning, but uh, apparently uh, the uh, the folks over at DPP weren't really aware of this. That is right. Um, I spoke with the director-designate yesterday. Uh, she said they had no idea that this was going on, um, but that they've launched an investigation as of yesterday morning. Um, and, you know, we'll see what the result of that may be, whether it will end in discipline or not. But um, it certainly doesn't reflect positively on the department that's already uh, reeling from a, a bribery scandal after five employees were federally charged with uh, accepting money for special favors. I mean, it, it's just, it, it just, it seems to get worse. I mean, it's like, gosh, I mean, you know, I, I know that Don Apuna was just, you know, recently tapped uh, to run the office, uh, but gosh, you know, you just think, didn't somebody notice? It is, um, Puzzling, uh, especially because the inspector disclosed his relationship to his company 10 years ago. Um, all employees with the city are required to disclose their outside employment um, once they're hired with the city or get promoted. They have to fill out this form, and he actually did. Um, so the city was on notice that he was doing this work for this company and that that work would come to DPP for permit applications and inspections. Um, but apparently sometime in the last decade, no safeguards were put up to ensure that he wouldn't be touching those projects. The Ethics Commission actually um, advised him to have his superiors review any of his work that would come to the department, and um, that didn't happen according to the city data I looked at. He had you know, himself uh, okaying his own work as well as people that are ranked lower than him. And we have had a bit of a revolving door over there at DPP. Right. So I wonder if it's possible that, you know, the people that knew about it left, but, um, it, you know, the director designate yesterday basically couldn't answer any specific questions, you know, citing the, the now open investigation. Um, so hopefully we can learn more about this as time goes on, how exactly this happened. And so, yeah, you want to make sure that you know, there are additional safeguards um, because it is like, you know, the the wolf <laughs> or the fox guarding the uh, hen house. Yeah, you re really makes you wonder about the, the internal controls they have over there. And Don uh, Takeuchi Apuna, the, the appointee heading the department, um, you know, she acknowledged that they need to do better and that the department is really struggling with a lack of standard operating procedures, checks and balances, um, outdated technology. She says she's doing her best to address all of these things and that as they tighten up the system, she's hoping that there will be less of an opportunity for her. Yeah, I mean, that that is a problem. Um, but gosh, uh, you know, so uh, you, I know you talked to a number of people uh, just about how they're looking at this from the outside. Yeah, I think people are kind of gobsmacked. You know, they have heard of it and was never able to prove it. And I think this just confirms for people, um, you know, the perception they already had of the department, which is unfortunate. Um, Honolulu Councilman Tyler DeSantis-Tam said it's just another black eye for a very beleaguered department that's going to need a lot of help from the council and the department itself. Yes, particularly when they have uh, lots of uh, construction projects that are going to be coming through the pipeline. Uh, but, yeah, uh, a very good story. But thanks so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read that story uh, at civilbeat.org. The 
memorial service for Abigail Cavanaugh-Nicoa at Iolani Palace and at the Royal Mausoleum this weekend has put the burials of Hawaiian Ali'i in the limelight. HBR has learned that for the last 10 years, the Ali'i Trusts have been working as a hui to ensure that the crypts of the lines of you know King Kamehameha and Kalakaua are properly maintained. Glenn Mason of Mason Architects says he's been humbled to have uh, worked to keep the tombs in proper shape. Mauna Ala is under the state parks jurisdiction, but the trusts from Queen's Health Systems to Kamehameha Schools have stepped up to take care of their own. This is a memorandum that was arrived at really as an agreement between the Ali'i Trusts and the State Park. And different Ali'i Trusts have taken responsibility for different tombs or crypts. The state has maintained responsibility for the caretaker's cottage, for the grounds, and for the comfort station, but otherwise it's been pretty much a shared responsibility of all of the Ali'i Trusts and the state. So I think it's actually worked superbly. I mean, it's really ideal. Everyone involved needs to be lauded for actually going forward with this and making it happen. Mauna is better cared for today than it has been in a long, long time as a result of this. Lots of attention is being given to the cemetery just because there will be a burial there soon with Abigail Cavanaugh-Nicoa. And I understand that, you know, Rabia Alms says that she's worked out a plan where her foundation will also then be included as part of this hui going forward. I mean, she actually signed the papers. Right. Was it a decade ago? And Bill Mayoho, who was Kahu at uh, Mauna Ala, is the one who essentially said, yes, it's fine. You know, she should have her own tomb here. And so everyone has worked off of that assumption for quite a long time. My understanding is that the tomb, and I've seen plans of it, that the tomb will, in some respects, resemble the Wiley tomb and be located across the driveway from it. It's going to be smaller and made out of granite, but otherwise in design it's going to have some similarity to a tomb that's already on the site. It's kind of interesting to go there because there are crypts and tombs on the site, many of which have been there for more than 100 years. And, of course, the chapel itself has been there since Mauna was first erected or done. But it has been really relatively unchanged for quite some time. So the Kawananakoa tomb will be an addition that kind of makes a little bit of a change to the area. Now, when the decision was made to put the Kawananakoa tomb there, I was asked to revise the maintenance plan for the entire site because one of the things that the Hui decided was that it made sense to have an annual checkup of all of the structures and buildings and whatnot that were on the site. So once a year, we literally go through a checklist that is set up for each building and make observations, do a report that says, oh, the fence is missing a finial here, or the grills at the chapel need to be painted, or any of the kinds of things that might be needed just through routine maintenance. Because like anything else, if you don't discipline yourself to look closely, you can just look past things. And the maintenance checklist is a way to make sure that things are looked at and cared for. And I've seen that booklet, that report, and it is impressive because you do lay out a timetable and things to look out for just in case you want to catch something before it gets too far gone. I mean, you're all about historic preservation. Right. That's key, particularly with this site, staying with everything, making sure that everything is painted and that something isn't rotting or something isn't working. A checklist forces you to look. It forces you to deal with things. Now, you can say, well, oh, this thing, we're not going to deal with this right now. We're going to deal with it a year from now or two years from now. But it actually makes you think about what you're doing and how you can preserve things better because 
if you don't do that, you know, suddenly your roof is leaking and then it takes another year to figure out what to do about it. That's the kind of thing that we want to try to avoid. I was looking at some old photos over the years of when I think Mauna Ala was first constructed, and those photos may be available at the state archives now online, but it was really pretty interesting just to see the changes, even with the landscaping. You know, some of the trees that were missing that I understand that Kawananakoa has replaced some of those royal palms, you know, the hala trees. While the structures still stand and they were new structures added over the years, the feel of the place and, and the, the landscape. It was just very interesting. Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that the Kahu has always taken the position that nothing should leave the site and essentially that nothing should change. And that actually has been an overriding guideline to all of the work that's happened up there. I mean, there isn't any desire to make significant radical changes because the place is too important to be treated like any other site. It's something, it's a place that has, there's a certain reverence for it, and it deserves that reverence. Quite honestly, shocks me when I visit the site with somebody who's never been there. I think everybody should have been to this site. It represents Hawaiian history in very significant ways. Every significant ali'i, well, with the exception of Luna Lilo and a couple of others, are interred at this site. And that is a pretty emotive way to look at the site. I'm always astounded when I, I find people haven't been there. When I was there one afternoon, it happened to be Queen Emma's birthday. The students from the Priory were up there in the morning. And when I was there in the afternoon, all the lay that they brought, you know, were draped on her tomb. Mm-hmm. So each trust then takes care of their own, right? Kamehameha Schools takes care of the Kamehameha line. And they take care of the Charles Reed Bishop Monument. Well, there's a Charles Reed Bishop Trust. So Queen Emma takes care of certain monuments. They all, all of them share responsibility for maintaining the chapel. So any work that is needed on the chapel is essentially shared on a pro rata basis among the Ali'i Trusts. But otherwise, individual crypts are assigned to certain trusts. Uh, Kawananakoa, uh, for example, handles part of the Kalakaua crypt. They share responsibility of the Kalakaua crypt, and they will be fully responsible for the Kawananakoa tomb. And so, you know, that's just the way the entire thing has been set up. It takes responsibility that prior to this was completely on the shoulders of state parks and the state, and assigned it to all the trusts as kind of a shared responsibility approach to the whole site, which is certainly understandable. I think the one thing that people need to kind of appreciate, it, it's sort of obvious, but maybe not quite so obvious, is that there's a whole underground to almost all of these tombs, right? I mean, the entrances are buried to the Kalakaua tomb, but there's room down there, you know, uh, Wiley tomb, the same thing. But each of these tombs or crypts is very different. And the Wiley tomb, for example, the entire base is made out of stone that's been with, with concrete over it. The chapel, nobody knows this now because they haven't seen it for years, is coral block. And it's been, you know, it was plastered in the early 20th century. So each of these structures has its own characteristics and, and therefore their own problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we need to be, we need to treat each one carefully and uh, with some knowledge of what each structure is made of, how it's put together, etc. When you walk through, they all look a little different, and, but there are many, <laughs> there are many Ali'i interred there and you see individual tombs or crypts and it's easy to think of one as one person or one thing but the Kalakaua crypt has many people interred in it and that's true of all of the all of the tombs and crypts the one that actually currently there that has the fewest number of people in it is the John Young crypt or tomb which has three uh, individuals buried in it but 
all the rest have far more. So if uh, anyone's going to pay a visit uh, to the cemetery in the near future, it might be good to read up on it and, and learn who's there uh, oh, so you can appreciate that history. The reason this is so important is that so many of our elite are, are interred there. It's a very special property. It's not a typical cemetery, you know, that needs to be treated and thought of that way. I've been honored to be able to work on it. That was Glenn Mason of Mason Architects talking about a decade ago, the Ali'i Trust signed a memorandum for the maintenance of the tombs of Hawaii's royalty. The State Parks Division also helps to fund uh, for the upkeep most recently, the improvements to the driveway, the comfort stations, as well as the caretaker's cottage. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Omfroy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon specializing in laser vision correction, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. Today on The Daily, without regulation or warning, more and more companies are using facial recognition technology on their customers they say as a security measure. So what happens when it's really being used to punish a company's enemies? I'm Michael Barro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio and we now go to this week's Manu Minute. We've got the call of the barn owl thanks to the Mokole Library at the Cornell Labor- uh, Laboratory of Ornithology. But it's not quite the hoot 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 you'd expect. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Barn owls are one of two species of owls we have here in Hawaii and are one of the most widespread birds in the world. Unlike the native pueo, which arrived in Hawaii on its own about a thousand years ago, barn owls were first brought here by people as recently as 1958. Barn owls have a white heart-shaped face with cream-colored feathers on their undersides and light cinnamon-brown backs and wings that are covered with fine white and black spots. If you see a whitish owl flying by at night, it's most likely a barn owl, as our native pueo spend most of their time hunting during the daylight hours. Barn owls are also very vocally active at night and make a number of very distinctive calls that might even wake you up from your sleep if they are nearby. The most common is an advertising call, mostly done by males on the wing, and has been described as a drawn-out, gargling scream. Another common one is the click-click-click call, which sounds a bit like its name and is also usually given by the male when it's bringing food back to its nest. Barn owls were introduced to Hawaii primarily to control rats in agricultural areas, but they've since spread and become common nighttime predators throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Unfortunately, in addition to eating rats, they're also major predators on many of our threatened seabird species. These seabirds, including Uwa'u, A'o, and many others, return to their nests on the ground at night and are easy prey for barn owls. In fact, owl predation is a major threat on many seabird colonies, particularly on offshore islets around the state. 
at the time they were introduced, very little thought was given about the potential cascading ecological effects they might have on other native Hawaiian animals. Fortunately, this type of thinking's completely changed today, and now biocontrol, or introducing certain very well-studied species to reduce populations of other species that have no known predators, is one of our best tools for protecting native Hawaiian wildlife. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Sex trafficking and sex assault, serious issues that affect many women, including those of Native Hawaiian descent. HPR's Ku'uvehi Hiraishi here to talk about the latest efforts to combat the problem. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, Senator Maisie Hirono yesterday, uh, Tuesday, hosted a roundtable discussion on this topic, on the topic of gender-based violence and uh, uh, brought together organizations that support Native Hawaiian survivors and, and help uh, this community sort of uh, come back from these uh, issues like sex trafficking and sexual assault. So representatives from, uh, representatives from OHA were there, as well as Papa Ololokahi, our Native Hawaiian health care systems, and uh, frontline workers like those at Halekipa who run a shelter and also do some youth outreach to really kind of uh, hone in on the challenges uh, that they face. Uh, but one of the uh, sort of prominent voices in there, a survivor, uh, Kalei Grant, uh, who is a sex trafficking survivor uh, here in Hawaii shared her story at yesterday's uh, event. As a Native Hawaiian woman who has, you know, I grew up born and raised here in Hawaii. This is also where I was trafficked. And now what I'm doing is really changing the face of what does generational trauma look like? Well, it's going to stop, start and end with me that no longer will it continue. But now I have that power to, to change that and focus on generational healing. What does that look like? How can culture be a protective factor in preventing indigenous or native Hawaiian youth from being um, bought and sold in sex trafficking? So that idea of finding solutions and all these uh, stakeholders at the table, we heard a lot of different ideas on how uh, Maisie and uh, Senator Hirona could help in terms of federal funding. Uh, now I know uh, Senator Hirono says for decades the Violence Against Women Act, uh, which provides support uh, to survivors of gender-based violence, excluded for a long time Native Hawaiians. And so uh, she helped pass legislation uh, last year that was signed into law by President Biden in December to allow Native Hawaiian organizations to receive federal funding to combat uh, gender-based violence. And we saw a report last year, I remember uh, hearing about this, the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women released a report uh, last year that underlined the disproportionate impacts that sex trafficking, sexual exploitation, and domestic violence had on Native Hawaiian uh, women and girls. And an interesting component of that conversation that we heard heard uh, at the roundtable was arrest data that shows that the military's involvement, uh, what the military's involvement looks like in contributing to sex trafficking uh, through sex buying, right? So those that were arrested uh, along these lines, Cara Jabola, uh, Carolus, executive director of the commission, says her organization has been working with the Department of Defense uh, to implement an anti-trafficking campaign that's modeled on one found in South Korea. So there was an anti-trafficking campaign in South Korea that included very clear signage at every single U.S. military institution or installation, rather, that included the consequences um, for contributing to sex trafficking through sex buying for solicitation, um, and that included an expanded off-limits list, trainings with local partners. Um, and so we want to explore how we can replicate the South Korea anti-trafficking yes. campaign here. 
Interesting. Yeah, and and so these ideas, there are a lot of folks working behind the scenes on and having these conversations with stakeholders like this, uh, like the Commission on the Status of Women uh, that's been working behind the scenes on this and trying to find the data because that's another part of the puzzle where you don't really know exactly how many or how big the impact is uh, when it comes to these particular issues. Uh, We heard from the head of Halekipa talking about a youth outreach program that they have there in Waikiki and um, trying to identify youth that may, young people that may be experiencing or at risk of uh, being sex trafficked here in Hawaii. You had mentioned that um, uh, for some reason uh, Native Hawaiians were excluded Oh, why is that? From VAWA? Yeah. In the beginning, I it had a lot to do with the um, just the definition of that, of um, indigenous Native Hawaiians not being a part uh, or uh, sort of an eligible recipient of these funds. And so just adding that language to that act uh, allowed uh, organizations like Papa Olalokahi and OHA to really uh, take these, have access to federal funds to combat this problem here on the ground. Okay, but yeah, it's good to be able to know the data, you know, collect the data. Exactly. There are a lot of challenges uh, moving forward, but having all these stakeholders at the table and this exchange of information, I think, helped um, kind of solidify uh, what we can do moving forward. Are we going to hear more about it, you think? I think so. It's something that uh, Senator Hirono seems to uh, want to uh, help at the federal level, especially when it comes to the military's involvement. So we may see some, um, some movement there. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kubehi. Thanks. We have been uh, talking to uh, HPR's Kubehi Hirishi about Senator Hirono's roundtable discussion, uh, which supports Native Hawaiian survivors of gender-based violence. Uh, you can find her reports online at hawaiipublicradio.org. to go now, but up tomorrow we bring you oral histories around activism in Hawaii. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.